Dennis Kamlik ate Korean tacos in Howell Mill with Nick Malone in the summer of 2011. Over the next decade, Dennis and Nick formed a creative friendship that led to the creation of two seasons of sitcom writing, a virtual cinematic script reading group, and this very podcast. Dennis Kamlik, the youngest of three genius Kamlik siblings, grew up with an almost preternatural understanding of pop culture and media. Writing film reviews for obscure films before ultimately penning a screenplay about Bigfoot, which was hailed at the time as Deliverance Meets Get Shorty. He rapidly accelerated through a brilliant entertainment marketing career. Upon the completion of his first teleplay for a show titled Off the Menu, which was subsequently rebranded after a preemptive copyright claim strike by a cooking show, which was later canceled, Off the Menu became Keep the Bottle Close. Nick met Dennis during his 31st year after a particularly engaging double date over a aforementioned Korean tacos. Upon the discovery of Dennis's book, Correct Me If I'm Wrong, as well as the script for the pilot of Keep the Bottle Close, Nick became a fixture in Dennis's phone as a frequent sender of unsolicited feedback. Ultimately, this led Nick to portraying his beloved character, Daniel Bates, the best friend of Ethan Cole, who was based on Dennis Kamlik. Tonight's episode, which will dive into the eccentric brilliance of Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums, will mark 30 episodes of the acclaimed Back by Popular Demand. This being Nick's fifth appearance, surpassing industry giants Brad Adgate and Scott Saffon, thus proving the mainstream notion that Nick Malone is in fact a thought leader. Man of the people. This is Back by Popular Demand. The ship's porter arranged for Richie to disembark at Halifax and transfer to a third-class stateroom on board the Queen Helena, destined for the eastern seaboard. His trunks would not arrive for another 11 days. Hey, Bomber. Do you mind if we get a picture with you? Not at all. He had made a request for his usual escort, the one from his days on the circuit, to meet him at the pier by way of the Green Line bus. As always, she was late. Nicely done on the cold open. Uh, hey. So you couldn't get Baldwin? What's up? <laughs> yeah, not quite in the budget, uh, although he's probably uh, available, I would imagine. Yeah, I would think he's available, and I would think he would do it. Why wouldn't he do it? You had asked me a question about this this morning, like where we first met, and you thought it was Italian. It was not Italian. It was Korean tacos. You imagine that the very first time we hung out was at a Korean taco joint, which I think is probably true. Uh, I have a recollection of us sitting at like a hole-in-the-wall Italian place. And I I told Heather the whole time leading out there that I do not want to go and meet some couple. I don't want to meet the guy. This guy's going to suck. I don't want to do this. And she's like, you're going, you're going, you're going. And it was like, fine. And then we went out and all of a sudden it was like the opposite. It was like, oh, whoa, 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 this is fun. And like, we're talking movies, we're talking sports. It was like, oh, this guy's awesome. Oh, this is good. We should do this. Uh, I thought that was first. It's been uh, it's been nonstop since then, my friend. I can't believe yeah. it. that was 2011. That seems like that was just a couple of days ago, dude. 
30th episode of this little podcast. How'd you get here? 30 episodes. We're even on Instagram now. Have you heard of Instagram, Nick? It's a uh, I believe media. Instagram is an old, old wooden ship used in the Civil War era, I believe, <laughs> is what, <laughs> what that is. Welcome back. It's great to have you back. You were the last on the show. You were on a couple of times this year. You were on for Anchorman in the spring, uh, yeah. which uh, to date of uh, this year in 2023 is the highest rated episode I've done this year still. Gotta so love it. I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to top Anchorman with the slate we've got for the rest of the year. So I think Anchorman's sitting pretty safe. And then you came back I'm, and we did the- tells uh, me this is going to be a pretty different conversation. Most likely. <laughs> I'm not probably going to get as many listeners for, for this one, but I don't really care about such things. And then you came back and we did the uh, Good Bad Movies Good with bad my brother movies. and Thompson, which was a lot of fun. Um, so thank you for coming back. I'm really excited to do this one. I want to talk about when I met Wes Anderson in New York City. I was up there. Did I ever tell you this? No. I'm fascinated because you've met a lot of celebrities that would make other people's jaw just drop. Uh, you're not saying like met like, oh, I saw Wes Anderson movie for the first time. You're saying you actually met the man. Oh, so I don't want to sound like a jerk, right? So like I work in entertainment, marketing, and media. Been, yeah. I have been in this business, as you know, my whole career. So I've had, as you said, I've, I've had a, an opportunity to meet a variety of, of notable figures that work in the business on and off throughout the years. My yeah. point of view on that is I've always tried to leave them alone. Listen, and it's hard. Like I remember once I was, I went to something at Nat Geo with my brother and he saw somebody or other, and he was really excited about it. And I'm like, dude, don't go up to the guy. Just leave him alone. Yeah, let him have his, let him have his shrimp cocktail, whatever he was doing at the reception. And, and Jim's like, dude, we got to go. We got to go. And of course we went. And, uh, and my brother was really excited about it, but like, I, I'm inclined to leaving the people alone. I do have to deal with them sometimes with my job, not as much lately, but over the years I had to. So, I don't find it normal and customary for me to approach somebody. And I okay. will say that if and when I'm going to do it, I'm very selective about it. And I, it's got to be for the right person, for the right circumstances. And like, it needs to be a big name, a big box that gets checked. So here I am. I'm in New York City. I want to say this was probably somewhere around 2014. You were definitely in my life at this point. 2015, definitely, I was up there yeah. for work. I think I was still working at Turner in Atlanta. And I was up there for something or other. And... I was downtown uh, having dinner in the village. And as I was leaving the restaurant, I was like the way that the, the restaurant was set up, that you had to like walk through the bar to, on your way out. And as I'm walking through the bar, I, I look off to the left and I see this guy. He's wearing a beige corduroy suit, as you can imagine. <laughs> and I, I literally stopped and I looked at him and he didn't see me yet. And I was like, well, that's obviously Wes Anderson. And wow. it wasn't even like, it was no question. It was Wes Anderson. Dude, That's he was wearing a beige corduroy suit. He wears that all the time. He wears that on a Tuesday. So I, I was like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, I got to go see him. So he's one of wow. those people that qualifies on my criteria of, of having to break my rule and, and go see him. So I, I just quietly went over to him and I, I waited for those guys to like stop talking for a second. He looked up at me. I was like, excuse me, Mr. Anderson. Just wanted to say I'm a big fan. I really admire your work as a filmmaker. I put my hand out and he shook my hand and he was like, that's so kind of you to say. He, he basically responded the way e Eli Cash would have. And <laughs> um, he just said, oh, that's so kind of you. Right. And like, yeah. and that was it. I was just like, have a good night. Enjoy your dinner. And I walked out the whole thing. Maybe nine seconds. Wow. Wes Anderson. That's freaking awesome. Have you met Wes Anderson? Yeah, I actually have. Um, and it was a, almost an identical story. Uh, I was in a, I was, I'd seen a screening of a film at BAM. 
Yep. And we went to a bar afterwards. He was at the same screening. And so he was in the same bar walking distance from Bam. And my buddy at the time, Ryan Davis, saw him and said, you know, that's Wes Anderson. He said, are you sure? At that point, I didn't actually know what he looked like. I couldn't I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. But I've seen, seen all his movies. You know, I've seen Rushmore. So I knew all the stuff. So we walked over to him. And, and I, I'm the opposite of I guess I'd be more inclined to be, I'm really nervous, right? So but I can't put in a, a coherent word. I, everything comes out of my mouth is garbage. So like I see him and I basically like Chris Farley and then SNL skit. Like, Oh, remember when you made the movie and the guys were cool. That was good. You know, I'm like, I, I so I don't want to say anything cause I'm sounding like an idiot. Yep. But like Ryan was like rattling off like, Oh, I loved, I loved what you did with Rushmore. I loved, I loved all your movies, this and that. And it was just like you said, he was very approachable, very polite, very gracious. I don't know if maybe the guy doesn't get approached <laughs> very much, but he was so gracious about anything. Like I, you would almost think it's going to be the opposite. You think you're going to run into like you meet the celebrity. I've had plenty of celebrities you're into and they look at you like the last thing I want to do is say a passing word to you. And then you're almost like crushed because it's like, oh, yeah. but I like hero worship you. And you're not going to, but like Wes Anderson was a polar opposite. He was so gracious. Uh, but I, I don't think I said a coherent word. I literally just stood there and my, my, I was with associate. My friend said, witty New Yorker things. And I, I stood there like an idiot. You mentioned to me a while ago that you wanted to do the Royal Tenenbaums. Whenever you were coming on next, Tenenbaums was the movie you wanted to do. So when I texted you finally that I was ready to do it, you practically like leaped through the phone. Why are you so excited about Royal Tenenbaums tonight? I think there's a lot of elements that make me love this particular movie. Obviously, I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan. And I feel like that could go either way. I know plenty of people whose opinions I respect a lot that are almost feel like he's polar, but I know most of my friends whose opinion, who I, with a taste that I really, really admire, they all are Wes Anderson fans. And so I think if you took, if you crystallize that whole beautiful catalog and said, what's his penultimate, I always go back to this. I always go back to Royal Tenenbaums. Also like the time in my life, I saw this, I was 21 years old. I was new to New York I was falling in love with New York City the same time I'm seeing Tenenbaums and the way that he shot New York, the way he kind of had his version of New York. Uh, and then on a thematic level, it really, really resonated. There's a lot of themes in there uh, that for a 21-year-old, I, I guess, there's just it just kind of fit. Um, so there's a lot of elements that I liked about it. But then also, like, I think I think that just the world he created, the aesthetic, it was I mean, it was it was peak West at his full abilities. It was the first time seeing it. It was almost just like being thunderstruck by a film walking into that movie. It, it just hit me in all of the senses like he no stone was left unturned. Every single detail was so meticulously imagined and dreamed out and thoroughly put out there. And I hadn't seen many movies where I was as floored by the overall picture as that one on top of the fact that thematically you know, like Richie uh, or, uh, you know, Richie falling in love with Margo or being in love with Margo and then they're just being forbidden. And then if you're ever, you know, heartbroken in New York, you know, like watching that movie, like, God, it was one of those movies. That you just feel like oh, I relate to this, even though I've got nothing in common with it. Like I related to it, you know, and, and it was it was absolutely staggering when you said like you wanted to do Tenet Bombs. I think for me, I think this has got to be very comfortably within my top five favorite films of all time of all time you've told me that and we're gonna everything that you just laid out we're gonna break down all those components because sure. there's, there's a lot of pieces to this movie as to why it's so revered and how much you like it but you said to me just the other day we were texting each other because you you went back and revisited the film again and i knew you would and i did as well you said this movie's perfect that's a big boy word perfect right you feel that way? I don't say that about a lot of movies i think some of my favorite movies of all time i would not say are perfect movies yep I think this one is a perfect movie. Um, 
There was a, a Quentin Tarantino interview, I think it was on Jimmy Fallon, and somebody asked him about perfect movies, and he said uh, he named off like seven films that he said were perfect, right? And and he said, and he also qualified it by saying, so much of that opinion is the individual's aesthetic that goes into it. You shape sure. a lot of it, so I think that says a lot about like for me, the, this is a perfect film, and it has a lot to do with my own taste. So there's other people who would watch this movie and not say it's perfect at all, but for me, it was. Taking another layer back, when I got really, really into film and I was in film school and I was really, really into great films and discovering movies that I would not have seen, you know, growing up that they had to like dig a little bit more, like looking at AFI's top 100 list. There's a Terrence Malick film called Days of Heaven that the story behind it, like people regard this as phenomenal. Malick made like two movies in the 70s and then I, I know the movie well. I know it well. Massive hiatus and every but everybody went back and said, oh, Terrence Malick, the filmmaker. Oh, Days of Heaven, right? It was this wonderful film. But then you hear Malick talk about in interviews and he said like, yeah, the script was terrible and he had to cut half the film out in the editing room because the performances were terrible. But in the editing room, he made the performances and he made the script better by cutting out all of his work. So in my mind, that can never be a perfect film. The polar opposite to me is Royal Tenenbaums because every single detail of that film works on every level. If you look at all the components that make a film a Best Picture nominee, in Royal Tenenbaums, they they knocked it out of the park. The performances were staggering. It was hyper-stylized. The costume design popped. The cinematography the you know every single element of it was out of this world great that to me adds up to it being like a perfect film but also i feel like another massive reason why i feel like this film was perfect was because some of the risks that he took and then actually delivered on and i feel like the if you looked at like the degree of difficulty to achieve as many elements of that film as he did i don't think there was a weak element anywhere in it there's a lot of pieces that are working in this film all in tandem, and it's it's one of those rare films where across the board all those boxes are being checked. I'm not sure if I think Tenenbaums is perfect, but it's damn good. It's damn good enough that we're doing an episode on it, right? Yeah. I hold it in very high regard. So then I started thinking, like, what are the other perfect movies, right? Yeah. And, that, and that's not tonight. We're not doing that tonight. But while we're here, let's just riff on it for <laughs> 90 seconds, right? Because we can. You raised a good point about saying that your favorite movies aren't necessarily perfect movies. Right. So, um, and there is a difference. Now, I, I, I think, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my favorite movies. Is it a perfect movie? Not sure. I think what I came up with was two that are more recent films No Country for Old Men by the okay. Coen Brothers, it, which did win Best Picture. Um, Thompson and I are circling that, by the way. We're thinking about doing that on the show sometime next year. That movie is a perfect movie. I, and it's been on a lot this summer. They've been on it. It's been on Showtime like over and over again. And I just keep coming across it and I keep putting the remote down and I keep watching it. That film is phenomenal. I don't think there's anything wrong with it whatsoever. I think the ending is a little bit abrupt, but I, I do love it. And then recently I came across um, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is pretty damn perfect. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about those two? I mean, it, it certainly helps when you're going to put Daniel Day-Lewis to drive your uh, <laughs> drive your your ship there. Uh, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson is a, definitely an auteur. And like everything that comes, it, it's the same level of meticulous thought and planning. I think um, I think that those are wise. My, my issue with No Country for Old Men, which you, you would never agree with, is I feel like. <laughs> you're right. Whatever you're about to say, I'm not going to agree with it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just felt like, uh, like 
the climate, like it was this, this, the setup between the villain and the Brolin character. And it's like, well, it's not really about that. I, I, I felt like it was this annoying New Yorker article trying to tell me like, yeah, dummy, it's not about that. It's about the Tommy Lee Jones monologue at the end. And it's like, well, yeah, I get it. But you set up this whole thing, this yeah, thriller, and it's it. not about that. And he's going to die off screen, not by the villain, by some other thing. Spoiler alert. Yeah. And I guess, <laughs> and I kind of felt like, okay, fine. I'm not reading the New Yorker right now. I want to see like an actual thriller. <laughs> and I, and, uh, and Brolin's character is awesome. And he deserves better than some off-screen non-plot line story whatever they gave him i don't know but i do see i do see why you think it's exceptional because um uh, barring barring my issue with the plot or like there I, I think that uh the performances were staggering in that the next movie that you and i should do yeah next sometime in 24 is is i know you have a lot of love for it is it perfect not sure but for the movie that it is when it came out the experience that i had watching it how I feel about it when I still watch it today, hmm. it's it's up there for me, is High Fidelity with John Cusack. Oh, I love High <laughs> Fidelity. Love High Fidelity. It doesn't have all the elements that a Wes Anderson-directed Royal Tenenbaums has, but it is, in its own right, It's it's got a lot going for it, don't you think? If you have ever had your heart broken or been broken up, there is no greater breakup movie to go sit back in and feel like I'm on board. I'm, I'm in the same boat as John Cusack. You know, like I love that one. We're going to need to do that one. That movie is. We got to do it. We got to do it. Outstanding. All right. So listen, tonight we're going to mix things up a little bit. You yeah. and I talked about it in advance that because the Royal Tenenbaums is structured like chapters in a book, which is one of the reasons yeah. I, I really love the film. It's clearly Wes Anderson has a lot of literary references in, in this film and, and many others that he's done. We're going to set up this episode tonight with chapters, right? And, you know, you and I both know what the chapters are. These chapters could be long. They could be short. They could be questions. They could be topics. They could be hot takes, whatever. No rules. We just want to, we're going to break it out this way. So we're going to jump from one to the next. But I guess before we do that, let's level set. Let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk about the movie just a little bit. The Royal Tenenbaums, directed by Wes Anderson. It was written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. And this is really at the time when Owen Wilson was still sort of up and coming. He had done a few things at this point, but I, I wouldn't say that he was necessarily opening movies by himself yet. Released on January 4th, 2002. This film was released as a New York, L.A. platform release, which just basically means it opens in New York and L.A. before it went wide around the country. That, that happened on December 16th, 2001. And it's pretty safe to say that I saw that film then on either December 16th, 2001, or maybe the next day on that Saturday. I was living in New York City. Uh, I was there a couple years at that point. I saw it at a very sold out United Artists Union Square in NYC, which is where all the uh, NYU film geeks go. Now, you well, mentioned that you saw it in New York. I did, were you in New York when this movie came out? I was. Yeah, I was. I was 21. I just graduated from AMDA. And I was living on the Upper West Side still, and I saw it at the uh, the uh, AMC over there in Lincoln Center. Sure. And there was so I saw it about a week before it came out. Uh, they, you know, how those guys would walk up and down with the uh, the clipboards and be like, "Hey, do you want to see a free movie?" And it was like one of those uh, <laughs> screenings before like the thing. And I yeah. saw it then. Uh, me and my buddy Kane Dinger went and saw it like, and and we we absolutely. Uh, lost our minds. We loved it. It's weird for me to think that you and I both lived in New York City at the same yeah. time at one point in our lives before we met each other in Atlanta. And uh, just think about the missed opportunity there. Wow. 
I mean, the the amount of good times it would have had. Uh, was this was this when you had Rom, the doorman there? Uh, Rom came a couple years after that, but yeah, I mean, not not long after that. Sure, for sure. We keep the bottle closed could have been like an actual documentary at that point. We could have actually been hanging out. Um, I don't know if I would have worked in your office, uh, stopping in your cubicle or not, but uh, we could have had some fun. <laughs> we absolutely could have. I remember like there was a buzz in the theater that night because again, like NYU is right there. There was a lot of like film geeks in the audience. So you could just kind of point them out. There's a, yeah, you know what it is. You've been, you oh, yeah. in New York, you, you know, when those people, they just come in, they've got their little scarf and they're just like, there's, there's just a vibe they have. And I, I remember like, I think there was a, a round of applause at the very end. The movie was very well received. I loved it. And I remember the next day, you know, Virgin Megastore was right around the corner from Union Square's theater. And, and I think I went out and bought the soundtrack right away, like everybody else that did, because I know that soundtrack was a hot one that everybody had that and Rushmore. It was budgeted at $21 million, not a, not a huge budget. It grossed 52 million, uh, made it 71 million worldwide. So this was not a, this was not a big movie, but it was an acclaimed movie. And I think it really, like all the other Wes Anderson films, certainly kind of carried on a life of its own after the theatrical run where home video and, and cable mm-hmm. and everything else that comes along after that really just kind of gives it a whole other life. But did you like have that immediate, like you just knew that you saw something quite special? For me, it was. Yeah, I, I, thought, I felt it was, I'd, I'd seen, I was, I was already a fan of Wes Anderson because of Rushmore. Yeah. So like I was excited to see whatever his new one was, but I didn't, I didn't expect it to be leaps and bounds like staggeringly better than Rushmore. I thought like Rushmore still might be better than this. And instead it was the opposite. It was like, almost like, Oh wow. Like I thought this was, I thought this was a staggering work of genius. I absolutely loved it. Well, listen, it, it debuted at the New York film festival that year, It received critical acclaim. It ended up becoming Wes Anderson's most financially successful film until 2014 when the Grand Budapest Hotel was released. And that movie ended up making more ultimately than, than Royal Tenenbaums. Gene Hackman, won a Golden Globe for his performance as Royal Tenenbaum. The interesting thing about Hackman, I want to talk about him for a minute. He yeah. he was Wes Anderson's only choice for Royal, yeah. and, and you could hear him say that he basically wrote the part for Gene Hackman in mind. However, Hackman wanted nothing to do with this film. He really needed to be persuaded by his, his, his agent and his handlers to uh, take this role on. He was quite reluctant to the point yeah. that even, I think at one point, Michael Caine was being considered for it because it didn't seem like Hackman was going to do it. I guess what they did is they basically told Hackman that he was going to guarantee that he would have a very fun, relaxing experience <laughs> on this film set. And yeah. as it turned out, um, the, it was the far opposite of that, where right. I guess for whatever reason. Because Wes Anderson is like Kubrick and he's got to have everything perfect. So it's not fun and relaxing. It's meticulous and, and probably very difficult to set that up the way that they set it up. I'm sure it was. And, and, and I think Hackman also is known to be a bit, you know, ornery and he's, right. he's an old school actor. He's a great actor. I'm a big Hackman right. guy. But I think, you know, he's he's one of those personalities that's not the easiest guy to deal with. So I guess. It wasn't going well on set. Well, his, pet peeve, his pet peeve, too, is like he doesn't like writers or directors telling him like, oh, I already wrote this just for you because he's like, well, that's a pet peeve of his. So then he's already kind of being like, like kind of surly and curmudgeon towards right off the bat. But he didn't like that because he doesn't like the idea that now the choice is already made for him. And like he's going to go into the performance and the director's already got an idea of what it has to be. And he's like, screw that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I could see uh, if you're a true artist, that would kind of bother you a little bit. If yeah. You're, if you're taking acting to that, to that level of seriousness, it got to a point where he started bullying Wes Anderson on set. And obviously Hackman is, is, kind of a big deal. So yeah. um, I guess all the other actors, all the other cast members really started getting awkward and they started getting angry and felt really bad for what Gene was doing to, to Wes Anderson. And 
And I guess it got to a point where Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelica Houston had to basically avoid him on set while they were there. And then Bill Murray got involved and he was like, look, this needs to, this needs to come to an end. And I guess he was the one that sort of, sort of stepped in and tried to make peace between, between Hackman and Wes Anderson to try to get, get everybody to get along a little bit better going forward. But here's what I'll say about that. Gene yeah. Hackman, fucking relax, dude. <laughs> eat, eat an almond joy. Do something. Fuck. I mean, when you hear stories like that, doesn't it just make you think like, how the hell did you make what might be like the best film that some of you people have ever made? How does that happen with that going on? And that's what's funny about it. Like he's he's such an asshole on set. Yet the guy ends up winning a Golden Globe for his performance. Deserved it. You know, I mean, it was, was, it was up what for, a performance. I was actually when I watched it the other day, prepping for this. I was looking at it through that lens of this guy must have been a jerk on set because I knew that, yeah. right? So I'm watching his performance, and you don't see any of that in, no. in the film. It's a phenomenal performance that he gives in this movie. Oh. I mean, he, he makes this movie. The movie has a lot going for it. But without Gene Hackman's performance, this movie, in, in the hands of another actor, I don't think this movie is quite as effective as it is with Gene Hackman. But Wes Anderson, Owen Wilson will end up uh, being nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Um, in 2016, the film was included on the BBC's 100 Greatest Films of the 21st Century. A couple of influences here, um, Wes Anderson influences. One was Louis Mao's 1963 film, The Fire Within, and yeah. Orson Welles' 1942 film, The Magnificent Ambersons. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen either of those. I'm not sure if you have. I've, I've seen scenes from Magnificent Ambersons, not the, the full film, but I, I guess a lot of commonality in terms of like the the mother of the matriarch of a family uh, geniuses gets remarried later in life and that causes a lot of the turmoil. So that part's the same. The rest of it's totally different. This movie was a giant step forward for Wes Anderson, in my opinion. And we're going to get into all the reasons in a minute. But, you know, if you go back and look at the two movies that he did before this and you have Bottle Rocket, which comes out in 96, I'm living in D.C. And I remember that movie opened at like one theater, played down at DuPont Circle, and I was living in Gaithersburg. So I had to like haul ass down to D.C. Yeah. to go see it. And I remember on a Saturday afternoon, I had read the reviews of it and it was getting great reviews. And it was like this really small indie movie from this guy that's from Texas and he lives in Austin and, and it's Owen Wilson and it's, it's his brother. And I'm like, what is this movie? Right. So I went, I went to go see it. And I remember I, I didn't love Bottle Rocket, but I really enjoyed it. Don't, you know, don't read into that. I liked it a great deal. I own it. Mm-hmm. It's a good film. But, you know, you, but what I, when I walked out of that theater, I knew that I saw something. That was the work of a visionary filmmaker. Like you could just tell that this guy had something to him that was going to be worth noting. And I think worth watching as this guy's career evolved. Right. So like, I just, I kept telling people bottle rocket was a really good film. You should see it. It's not a great movie, but it's a, it's a very, very solid um, debut film. And then when Rushmore comes out two years later, now I'm like, I, I had stock in this guy. Like I, I knew who he was. I was like, this is Wes Anderson's next film. It's got Jason Schwartzman. It's got Bill Murray. And it's a, a big studio is, is putting it out. And that was an event for me. Like, Did I you know go Jason see, Schwartzman prior to Rushmore? I don't think so. Do you, I mean, do you remember him in anything prior to that? I, I mean, he, was in a, he was in an indie band like Phantom Planet. Uh, I don't know. if That, that might be the, his first film. Um, but I remember it was a big deal because he got a lot of the like the press leading up to it. They're like, this kid is this kid is going to be a superstar because of this performance in this film called Rushmore. I remember when I saw Rushmore, I was like, all right, this film, this is a guy that's in full command of his material. He, he evolved yeah. as a filmmaker. He started to do a little bit more of the world building that you mentioned earlier, yeah. which he really takes to the next level and Royal Tenenbaums. But he arrived like in Rushmore right. for me. 
everything about the way that film was directed and written and the use of music. It was like, this guy, this guy's for real. He's the real deal. He's, he's going to become a big time filmmaker. And then obviously just how good was Bill Murray and, and Rushmore oh. just for a half a second. I mean, man, I mean, I don't know if there was ever a point when Bill Murray's career was ever in decline, but man, didn't he have a resurgence after Rushmore? I mean, it felt like that was a moment in time where all of a sudden it's like, Whoa, Bill Murray. Like it was like Bill Murray's back dude. And like, it was like, Bill Murray all of a sudden was like in this phenomenal performance. It was, it was fantastic. Murray. Fantastic. There's that scene when he's in the car with those two idiot kids and they're in the back seat. And like, and like one of them like is like wising off to him and he, and he like, he reaches back with his arm to try to like grab both of them by the neck. (laughs) He was was like so angry. Just, just hilarious. Such a hilarious, hilarious performance. Um, And then Tenenbaums comes along right in 2001, a couple years later. And this is, this is the movie for me for Wes Anderson. When I, when I saw Tenenbaums, I was like, wow, this guy is, you know, he's given more money now. It's a big touchstone release and he's got this huge cast. And, and as you said a little while ago, just delivered on all marks. And it was like, this guy is here. He is a big time filmmaker, and I think this guy is going to have serious longevity in the industry. Here's what the Hollywood Reporter had to say about the Royal Tenenbaums: Wes Anderson reveals himself to be a highly original comic talent, impressive both for his strongly controlled deadpan style and for providing a sense of emotional heft lacking in most mainstream film comedies. Totally agree with that. While the filmmaker's propensity for preciousness threatens occasionally to overwhelm its highly contrived and quirky scenario, The Royal Tenenbaums is a deliciously absurdist comedy that should garner critical acclaim and, with proper handling, far greater commercial success than his previous efforts. I agree with it in principle. I feel like I was probably a little more gushing about it than they were in some of our – they're, they're, they're contrived and, and this and that kind of – I, I feel like – You're a little insulted? I feel like, yeah, I feel like to a degree, it's like I felt like all that stuff worked a lot better than that. And then I think I think they at least admit though they should have far greater commercial success than his previous efforts. As I'm like, this is going to resonate enough with people. It's going to make money. It's going to be a hit. Um, and it does the quirky scenario and the highly contrived that that, that language sort of bothers me uh, about this. But I get I get why you would think that. And I and it is deliciously absurdist. You know, like yeah. some of that stuff is is true. But some reviews were not good at all. Like I read. Really? I want to say it was the New York Times review, I think. And I'm not sure if it was Janet Maslin or if it was somebody else. And the review was like, it was not great. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't a four star, you know, or even three and a half stars. It was probably a two and a half review. And I was yeah. like, man, they didn't, they didn't really, really enjoy this film. So I didn't want to really want to reference that here. Are you getting divorced? At the moment, no. But uh, it doesn't look good. Do you still love us? Of course I do. Do you still love Mom? Yes, very much, but your mother's asked me to leave, and I must respect her position on the matter. Was it our fault? No. Oh, obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Then why'd she ask you to leave? I don't really know anymore. Maybe, uh... I wasn't as true to her as I could have been. Well, she says... Let's just drop the jelly in a chassis. So let's get into the chapters. Okay. Chapter one. I'm going to call this one First Love. First Love. Nick, when did you first fall in love with Wes Anderson? I saw Bottle Rocket in when when it was sort of like making like the viral. And I think we rented it at Blockbuster, me and my friends in, in high school and saw it. And I didn't love it nearly um, as much the first go around as I did in subsequent viewings later on. Yep. I fell in love with the, the style of Wes Anderson after Rushmore. 
I had just graduated high school. I went with, uh, it's funny enough, like we'll get to it later on in the story, but I feel like uh, if you look through the lens of like Eli Cash, the, I always wanted to be a Tenenbaum. Yeah. In my life, the the, the guy, I, the family I always wanted to be that I that wasn't, uh, when I was in high school, there's this family called the Metellas that I was pretty good friends with them. And I was a fixture in their household and <laughs> always showing my report cards to their mom and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, so I, I showed up, uh, me, and, me and Thomas uh, went and saw Rushmore and, I, I feel like what's interesting about like we were saying about the Hollywood Reporter review and some of the other reviews where they didn't get it. Like you either latch on to the Wes Anderson style and aesthetic or you just like, what am I looking at? And for me, it was like I immediately latched onto it. I immediately yeah. loved it. So Rushmore, it was all about I mean, it was like to me, like I, I always thought uh, it was really, really funny when you have kids that are saying like lines that would be adults you know, the humor and like Rushmore was full of that where like kids are having like the, the kid uh, Max was having fr- conversation with the, the kids and it wasn't the normal kid stuff on the playground. They're talking as if like they're adults in an actual drama and it worked and like he nailed it. And like it, and all those aesthetics work. Like literally Max was directing Serpico as the school play at Rushmore and all these things. And I just thought like, this is hysterical. Like I, I loved, I loved that, that I, I got, I just bought into that like kind of immediately. And then you talk about the Bill Murray stuff. I, I yep. thought at that point, Bill Murray could do no wrong after seeing Rushmore. And I, I kind of bought in. So I thought after seeing that, whatever Anderson does next, I'm going to see it at that point. He bought enough equity with me that like yep. I, he could have, he could have put out a dud. He could have put a few. And I probably would have still said, well, I like Rushmore. I'm going to go see it. You and I are similar. So I certainly didn't fall in love with him um, during Bottle Rocket. But I, as I said earlier, like, I felt like there was something there. So when mm-hmm. I saw Rushmore, I'm pretty sure I saw it with, with Jim. And we saw it in the theater. And we saw it like shortly when it opened. I remember for me, it was like I knew this guy's movie was coming out. I needed to go see it. And so it's definitely Rushmore for me. But it's specifically it, – and it's early in Rushmore. And there's that sequence when, they're, when, he's, when they introduce the Max Fisher character. And they play that song "Making Time" by the Creation, and it's this yeah. it's this montage of all the different extracurricular activities that Max Fisher has at the school. Right? You know what scene I'm talking about? And it's like he's the, he's the president of the Beekeepers Club, and he's like it's all this bullshit that he's doing. Right? I mean, this guy this guy's got so many different gigs that he does outside of his studies. No wonder he's failing because he's not spending any time in his class. Right? But that yeah. sequence, that minute sequence of that song. And it's just one cut after another of all these great, like funny visuals of Max Fisher. And, and he's the director of the Max Fisher players and, and he's yes. wearing the beret and on all that stuff. Right, dude. That's when I fell in love with Wes Anderson. I was like, this, this guy, this scene is hilarious. Like what, what is this? But the fact that he broke the mold of like just traditional right. storytelling and it wasn't very linear. And all of a sudden, like there's this montage and it's this rock song that's British rock. And you're like, Whoa. yeah. And, and that's the work of a filmmaker. And that's like somebody that's that vision that was it. And then I think there was, and what you said earlier, there was a line from the, later in the movie, there's a line where, where Bill Murray basically says them. And I've referenced this with Newhouser in the past when he said something like, what's the secret max. And he's like, I guess, you know, you got to just find something that makes you really happy in life and then do that for the rest of your life. And he's like, for me, it's going to Rushmore. <laughs> Which I mean, it's funny, but that's also an element I was going to bring up. I feel like, again, this is similar to Tenenbaums in the sense that uh, there was a thematic element that really resonated with me. When I saw Rushmore, I had just graduated high school and I was actually having a hard time with the transition from high school to college. Like I had a really, really phenomenal high school experience. And I had a little bit of like depression when that ended, like, and now I'm going to go from like the the decent sized fish in this size water to now I'm going to college. And I had a hard time with that. So like, 
I understood where Max wanted to stay at Rushmore yeah. to a bit, but then the fact that he took something that would be heartbreaking and made it really funny. Um, that's, that's comedy, right? Like that, that he does that very well in this. And then the themes of melancholy and depression and Tenenbaum's the same sort of deal. He makes all of that stuff, something you can laugh at even when you're in the throes of whatever the emotional feel it is. So for me, like Rushmore, I might not have liked it if I saw it for the first time in my forties, I might've loved it, but I mean, I know I liked, I know I loved it then because I felt similar to how I think Max would have felt if he actually did graduate from Rushmore and had to leave it. We've proven that I'm a little bit older than you. So like, you know, I was at a different life stage when that movie came along, Rushmore, and I didn't relate to it the way you obviously did personally. And that's really interesting that you could relate to that character and where he was at that stage of his life. And that says a lot about the way that film was, was structured. Let's move on. Chapter two. Yeah. I call this one, is this movie even a comedy? So let me, yeah. let me start because I think you and I are going to, we're going to spar on this one a little bit. What I love about this movie, and this really hit me when I watched it again the other day, is like this, my love for this movie has sort of evolved as I've yeah. gotten older. And I think when I watched it in 2001, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old. And for me, it probably it probably played very much like a comedy. And I was, you know, opening night, I'm, I'm laughing out loud. I'm in New York City and I'm, this is Wes Anderson and and all that. Right. But I, I guess when you it, when you watch a movie like this for the first time, it's really hard. You don't have a pause like you don't have a pause button where you can stop. You don't have a DVD where you can watch it over and over again. So you're not picking up on a lot of little nuances that this movie has. And and so when you watch it repeatedly later, you really start to realize that what this movie is about. And you you just mentioned this, this movie is about loss. This movie is about regret. It's about the passage of time. Um, You know, missed opportunities, which I think as adults, we can all relate to in various stages of our lives, right? It's about failure. It's very much about failure. It's about Mm -hmm. redemption. And I guess, you know, those of us that have, have taken a few laps with life, um, and you know, and you, you get to an age where I'm at now, where you think like the clock is ticking a little bit. You really sort of see this movie a little bit differently than you do when you're when you're 21 or when I was 31, where it really just felt like a you know a humor play. And I don't see that movie anymore. So I guess my question to you is: Is this movie a comedy? Because it, it's pretty <laughs> damn depressive. And 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 I and I wrote this in your notes. I said I wouldn't say this movie is a comedy. At most, I would say it's an epic depressive comedy. But it's really not that funny. I see why you would say that for sure. When you think about what the themes that he really went after, um, and then and also like because it it hit on those levels, actually did achieve the pathos of that to deliver on that successfully makes it think like, well, are is are these funny scenes? I feel like there's one sort of cliche line about comedy that I feel like crystallizes why I think it is, um, and I heard it a million times in New York. But the difference between <laughs> comedy and tragedy, right? Comedy equals tragedy plus time. And and when I first heard that, I don't know if I fully understood it. I thought like it was more of like a, a pacing kind of comment, which okay. possibly there's like some layer of that. But what you look at now later in life, as you look back on that, uh, the events that were tragic, you're able to laugh at <laughs> with a little bit of time removed in some ser- scenarios. Like uh, I think with like uh, the getting uh, breaking up with the girl that you wanted to date in high school or college or whatever, early early when when you're 20 years you know removed from that you're able to laugh at some of it um when you're your childhood whatever was super heartbreaking and child you can look at like through a comedic lens part of that is certainly true um i think what was really compelling about tenenbaums is that i was able to find the comedy from tenenbaums while i was actually feeling some of those elements in real time didn't have the the benefit of plus time it was sort of like Yep. And right now, and I can still kind of find this funny. Um, I also think that 
just the dialogue, the dialogue alone, even that the scenario and the framing of it might have dramatic elements to it. The dialogue alone lets you know that you're allowed to laugh at this. It is all comedy, right? I mean, you can't watch Ten Bombs Down and have a, not have a huge smile on your face. <laughs> I agree with you. Look, what makes me laugh in this movie is are, are the West Anderson pieces, right? It's it's the way, as you said, it's the writing. It's it's the way a line is delivered. It's I mean, there's so many great lines that, and Bill Murray only has a few lines as as Riley Sinclair. We're going to talk about him later, but like the ones that he does have, and there's few of them. He delivers them so well that, like, you obviously laugh out loud, right? But, like, <laughs> you, when you, when you, you mentioned Chaz earlier, right? And that's that's the uh, Ben Stiller character. And, you know, Chaz, I mean, this movie, his storyline is tragic. He lost his totally. wife. She got killed in a plane crash, right? And, and, the, and the humor is built around that he's like a, a safety freak. He and his sons wear these red track suits, these Adidas track suits, because they want to be able to get away quickly from danger, right? That inherently is not funny. And there's nothing funny about losing your wife to a plane accident. However, in Wes Anderson's world, right, this is where the, the humor is. Like, there's a shot when, when we first find out that that's Chaz's story, they show the plane crash and they show Buckley's Buckley, the dog, they show his crate. And it's like, it's maybe like a mile away from the, where the rest of the wreckage was. Right. And he's yeah. in his little crate and he's fine and he's safe and he's a little cute Buckley. And he's just sitting there hilarious. Like yeah. that, the way they show the crate in the middle of this plane wreck is not supposed to be funny, but it is funny. And you're, laugh, really you're funny. laughing out loud when I'm just talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then also like, all the Stiller stuff was funny, and it was also like so not what Ben Stiller does, right? His stuff is much more big, broad comedy than that. He does Tenenbaums, and he fit like he fit like that world like a glove. He was funny. He was funny in scenes like well, he, he crashes. Uh, he crashes his mom's house, and he's sleeping there in the seeming yeah. the kids, and he's got the stopwatch and all, all those stuff like there. He he wasn't over the top Ben Stiller, but he was he's still hilarious. Like just the even in like what would be like kind of dramatic, sad scenarios, like it was still funny. One of the things I find really interesting about this film is that there's a I mean, the way this movie opens, it's beautifully orchestrated where you have this phenomenal narration by Alec Baldwin and they and they set the stage and they introduce these characters very economically. They do it very quickly, you know, they do it over the Beatles, and it's like it's it's done super fast. And they talk about these 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 child geniuses, right? And 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 they show each one of them and how you know Chaz became successful in finance and Margot and her playwriting and Richie with tennis and and but all that is done so quickly. And then right at the end of that speech that Baldwin gives, he talks about how like the next you know twenty years of their lives was was basically you know in failure. And 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 he pivots from these these kids on the top on top of their world, but then all all of a sudden we pick up and and they are now failures. And that's where this movie gets started is he skips that entire genius childhood, which in the hands of another filmmaker, that's a movie oh, right yeah. there, you know, and but that's not what Wes, he doesn't want to show that movie. He wants to talk about these people now having lived life for 20 years and their failures. And I find that really interesting. I guess that's why I, I don't always feel like it's truly a comedy because it, there's such a melancholy um, woven through this film. It's certainly valid. And I think it was intentional. Um but I tell you, I mean, I watched it. I watched it the other night, and and literally stuff that you 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 would not think are meant to be funny moments just are. Like it's something about like the. I think that's another reason why I really feel like this was such an achievement is the fact that he played on these opposites. He took things that shouldn't be funny scenarios and made them funny. Like you wouldn't you wouldn't say that. Uh, I mean, like I'm thinking Ben Stiller. He was obviously funny, but then you put at the end like when he tells he tells Roy, he's like, you know, I had a tough year. 
And yeah. so, you know, like that was like a real like, oh, geez, you, like, you just see it all over. I'm like, yeah, this guy's this guy's going through grief right now. And it, and you don't and you don't think like, oh, this is the you know, like this is the, the comedian that can't do the drama. Like, no, you buy that he's going through those emotions. Yeah, it's it's a really poignant scene. I know exactly. It's at the end of the film. It's at the very end of the film. And and he's talking to his dad. and He's like, Dad, I've, I've had a rough year. And he's like, I know you have Chazzy. And like, it, it's like, man, you really your heart breaks for Chaz and what he's been through. And I think like he sort of like lives his life throughout this entire film where he doesn't think anybody understands what he's going through, you know, and he lost his spouse and he's worried about his two sons and he's got this terrible relationship with his father. And he's just like in a bad place. But that scene gets me every time it's gut wrenching to watch. And it's amazing to me that it's, it's thrown in. I think the movie's got maybe two minutes left after that and, and then it's over. And that's, that was kind of Chaz finally breaking down and, you know, for anybody that's gone through any sort of you know tragedy or, or serious loss, I mean, it's hard not to relate to that character, even in a comedy film like this. It's still it's still pretty heartbreaking. I, I that's one reason why I consider like perfect because Ben Stiller shouldn't be capable of delivering a scene like that, especially like they brought him in because he's the funny guy, and they brought him in to be a funny character in a comedy. Yeah, he shouldn't be able to deliver that in the same way that Owen Wilson shouldn't have been able to deliver the 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 bits with margo and and richie and richie should have been i mean that that shouldn't have been i mean i'm skipping ahead here but but my goodness like the the way they were able to tackle some of the really really challenging moments in a stylized hyper stylized quirky absurdist comedy in a world that was like a world created thing like some of those things should make you take a trade-off some of those over-the-top elements should make it impossible for you to give a genuine performance you know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, okay, you're going to, you know, we're going to have this world around you. So we're going to take a little off of the fact that you're going to have to suspend disbelief, but you didn't really have to suspend any disbelief in this. And I think like when I watched this movie initially, I don't remember the love story of it being so pronounced. And again, obviously I remember it because it's, it's part of the movie, but like when you watch it repeatedly, you realize like these, I mean, the whole movie is basically Richie's in love with Margot, and he always has been. Right. Um, she's an adopted sister, so I, he doesn't seem to have an issue with it. He recognizes that other people might. But in, in, in the whole sequence, when he goes away on that boat for a year, he's on that that um, ship, and he's and the reason why he did it after his tennis meltdown is because he was in love with her, and he didn't have to communicate right. it to anybody, and he felt guilty about it, and like. He decided, I'm just going to be away from my family for a year and travel travel the oceans. And the reason he had the meltdown in the first place, I think, was lost on me at first. The first watch go round and, and Margot's choices with all that was like, I didn't put two and two together. Oh, she's doing that because she can't be with Richie. Yep. It was like subsequent viewings. I think that the first time I saw it, I was probably enamored with the Gene Hackman performance overarching over the rest of them, even though I liked all the rest of it so much the first, but that, that seemed to me like this is the Royal Tenenbaum story of winning his family back. And it wasn't until you said those subsequent viewings are like, Oh, hold the phone. This is, <laughs> this is a forbidden love story about these two people. And the reason why they're tragic is they can't be together because they're essentially like, she's the adoptive sister. So the brother and sister. Yep. Oh, and then it's like, it, and it connected all those plot elements in there. And it's like, oh my God, that's heartbreaking. And it's like, and it was brilliant. And yeah, I mean, it's obvious that he even shows you early on when the two of them, when they were kids, they ran away together. Right. And they went to the library for a week or whatever it was. And they're like, they're, you know, and that was, that was Richie and Margo. It wasn't the other brother. It was Richie and Margo. Like there's these little, these little hints that he gives you throughout the film that you realize, wow, this relationship was a lot more um, powerful between the two of them. I, I think you realize when you, you first see it. So chapter three. Why we love Royal. No particular order, 
but right. Royal Tenenbaum, Gene Hackman, his motto, I'm not talking about dance lessons. I'm talking about putting a brick through the other guy's windshield, taking it out <laughs> and popping it up. And then he's like, you can't raise boys to be scared of life. You got to brew some recklessness into them. And she's like, I think that's terrible advice. <laughs> when I hear Royal Tenenbaum talk about that, and, and this is a guy that likes to like, he wants to go down to Little Tokyo. He's he's a, he, he wants to go buy fireworks with his grandkids, right? Yeah. He's the guy to his grandkids. He also says, "I'm very sorry for your loss. Your mother was a very attractive woman." <laughs> My dad told me a lot about his life when he was a, when he was like a teenager. My dad was pretty reckless, and he was a guy that went out with his buddies, and they'd go to the subway and they'd get a mannequin and they throw the mannequin in front of the, a moving train and like pretend it was a real person, and the train would stop and they would run off, right? That's the kind of stuff that I think Royal Tenenbaum absolutely would have done if he was a teenager, right? Don't you think? Totally. I mean, like Royal is, I mean, he's, he's one of those, like, I feel like this was also a product of the era. I, don't, I wonder, I wonder if in 2023, if, if this movie came out now, if this, if this modern day sensibility would be as enamored with Royal, but in that era, the anti-hero was all the rage, right? And right. like, the guy who says the inappropriate things and like, you know, it's inappropriate, but you're going to laugh anyway. Like that was Royal to me. Like the, some of the funniest scenes in the film were when he was like at Margot's play as their kids. And he, and he didn't even watch it. Right. <laughs> he didn't even watch their show, but then he tells her like, I don't know. It just seems like a bunch of kids just make, make any, everything that was foot and mouth, everything was foot and mouth. And, all the comments to her about uh, it, or, or introducing her people as his adoptive daughter. And then like, and like he mentions the grandmother's grave site and she's like, I, I was never allowed to go there. And he's like, well, it wasn't really your grandmother. You know, it, like everything out of him is like, well, you can't say that. Like, and it was like funny because he was such a foot and mouth guy and he was saying all these inappropriate things. But yeah, the other thing is like, you look at a thing of having not known the guy, man, he's probably a fun guy to grab a beer with. Oh yeah. I mean, don't you don't you want to go to Little Tokyo with Royal? As a dog lover, I don't condone dog fighting, but I think it's pretty damn funny in the movie <laughs> right. to take the grandkids to, to go bet on on dog fights. I think like the thing that I love the most about about Royal's character is like this is a guy that's trying to scheme to get back to with his family. He misses his family. Again, like this is a movie about the passage of time and regret that yes. I think he misses his family, right? So he convinces everybody that he's got stomach cancer and he and he, he moves back into the house, right? They all actually move back into the house. He's wearing like these pink pajamas from Colby General Hospital. And like these pajamas even have the logo of Colby General. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this, but the logo is actually on the pajamas on his shirt. And like the <laughs> fact that that Royal and his buddy Dusty from from the uh, from the hotel that he, that he lives at and, and Dusty is pretending to be the Dr. McClure from Colby General. The fact that his pajamas say Colby General and then he went to that length to get those pajamas that actually have the logo of the hospital to pull a fast one on his family, that's hilarious. Hilarious. And and the the dialogue with when Dusty's talking to the family kids and he's like doing the whole fake scene, like where yep. he's convincing the family that he's got stomach cancer. So Richie says, like, is he gonna make it? Well, let me ask you this. Is he a fighter? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all we got. <laughs> dialogue is perfect <laughs> i love that royal tenenbaum lives in a hotel for for 22 years or whatever it is years. and like he, he's always in the lobby and he's always like talking about his books and he's like takes all his phone calls his encyclopedias and, <laughs> and like there's just this like this quirkiness and again that's all wes anderson and totally. Owen wilson's screenplay that that just has these these funny little nuggets but i mean the thing for me is you know the scene where and we're gonna play the clip 
the scene when he he calls Danny Glover Henry Sherman, he calls him Coltrane, which I, I debated even playing the clip here because it's not appropriate. And you actually right. said this a little while ago that this movie, there's parts of this character that would never get greenlit today. No, no way. No, right? No but way. Like, let's listen to this clip. This is this is one of my favorite Wes Anderson clips ever. Can I ask you something, Hank? Okay. Are you trying to steal my woman? I beg your pardon. You heard me, Coltrane. Coltrane? What? Did you just call me Coltrane? No. You didn't? No. Okay. But if I did, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it, would you? You don't think so? No, I don't. Listen, Royal. If you think you can You want to talk some jive? I'll talk some jive. I'll talk some jive like you never heard. Oh, yeah? Right on. Sit down. What? Why, why did you say? I said sit down, Oh, I heard you. I want you out of my house. I'm just as bad as you are. I'm breaking the ass out. Don't talk semantics with no, me. That's just not his. What's going on here? Nothing. It's so inappropriate. How good is Danny Glover as as uh, oh. Henry Sherman? Awesome. Phenomenal Danny Glover. Yeah, he teaches his grandkids how to throw water balloons at taxi cabs. Um, and then there's that scene in the beginning of the film when he's in, they're in a BB gun fight with his kids. And uh, they look like they're on vacation <laughs> at some like, island. Team. And, he's, and he, he's like, there are no teams. And he shoots his there own kids. No teams. <laughs> Unbelievable. I feel like what was really brilliant, or one of the brilliant choices that Hackman ultimately made, and he spoke to it. They said somebody asked him after Tenenbaum's like uh, what the, what he thought about the costume selection and the costume choices because they were very deliberate and they're very pronounced. Obviously, very very loud colors, which was obviously for a very specific purpose by Anderson. But Hackman kind of washed his hands of that entirely and said basically like, I'm not going to let my acting be influenced by what I'm wearing. The the costume will will the costume basically does its own performance. Like you, you, you gather as the audience member, what you're going to gather from seeing the costume without me having to put an effect on it. Yeah. And so then he went in and just played it the same way that Gene Hackman would have played it. If he was wearing, uh, you know, shorts and a, and a, uh, you know, t-shirt, like it was, he didn't, he didn't do it any differently because of what he was wearing. And it also kind of goes back to why he was annoyed by the film was written for him. The whole, like he's going to make his own choices and he still did it. Uh, so I feel like a lot of like the charm and the charisma of Royal probably was Hackman. Yeah, I mean, look, not every actor is going to deliver a a Coltrane line the same way, no. right? And I think the way <laughs> Hackman does it, he's sitting in the kitchen, and he's listening to a ball game, and and he just kind of whispers it under his breath, and then he pretends that he didn't say it. And like again, like another actor is going to handle that that delivery very very differently. The, the scene might not work at all, you know, and, and in many ways the scene probably shouldn't work because it's not appropriate. And what's funny too, is if you think like, you know, a lot of the actors that Wes uses really do get Wes's aesthetic in his world. I don't know that Gene Hackman did from the stories you were telling at the beginning of this about uh, what he thought the set was going to be and what he found on set. It didn't sound like he was some kind of raving fan of Wes Anderson's process or his world. I didn't think he didn't sound like he got it at all. The fact that he delivered, I think it just it continues to just blow my mind how well he did in that role with the fact that I don't think he did buy in. It's funny you say that because if you look at Wes Anderson's career and all the films he's made, I mean, he is a filmmaker that has a reputation of every actor in town wants to be in his film. Like he's he's an actor's director, as they say, right? And, and right. the way he writes his characters and like, I mean, look at the, all the movies he's done. I mean, he's had amazing yeah. A-list people 
over and over again. And these are people that repeat in his films. Bill Murray, who's impossible to even get in any movie because the guy has a phone number and you got to leave him right. a message and he might call you back and he might not. And that's how you get and Bill he's Murray. He's going to show up for Wes Anderson films. Unbelievable. You got, you know, guys like Edward Norton that are really, really good actors. Like he's just. So I'm, I'm not sure if Hackman really understood. Maybe it was because it, it was so early in, in Wes's career right. and he didn't quite realize um, what he was walking into and how, you know, what kind of film this was going to end up being and, and how, where it sits in, in the, the Wes Anderson canon. I don't know. He's a great character. It's a phenomenal performance. Let's go to chapter four. You talk okay. about the look and feel of this film uh, earlier at the start and like the cinematography, the production design, the costume design of this film, it's marvelous. And you got, I want to give a shout out to cinematographer Robert Yeoman, who uh, also did Grand Budapest. Production designer David Wasco, who actually does all the Tarantino movies. He did Pulp Fiction and, and all the others. He won an Oscar for La La Land. And uh, the costume designer was Karen Patch, who also did Rushmore. This was the movie where I felt like Wes Anderson became an artist. He became a world builder. He does it in every single movie after this. I don't think he did it mm-hmm. in Bottle Rocket or Rushmore to this extent. But like his films have a look. And, I, and you watch it, and you're just like, you know, I wrote this in our notes. I said that this is a dreamlike bygone New York City, right? And it's yeah. like, it sort of feels like a dream. It's a, just a little bit off center. You've got these grand hotels, right? You've got elevator operators, which by the way, yeah. I think you'd be a good elevator operator, Nick. I meant to tell you that. I, I have a great time doing it. <laughs> you've got these mansions. You've got gypsy taxi cabs, these stylized costumes, as you said earlier. It's all just a little bit off center and really like, I think this was the first, very first film that he did that created this universe, this aesthetic, yeah. and that he never stopped since then. He just took it and ran with it. And you can make the argument that you know it would be nice to see you not do that every once in a while and, and do something a little bit different just to see what it would be like as a Western. Now the expectation is this is what he's going to do every time. This is what he's going to do. The way all the shots are centered and yeah. framed and the use of, of the fonts, the Futura font that he uses. But like, <laughs> there's not a lot of filmmakers that are taking this – extreme um, sense of style and, and the way every scene is done. It's incredible. I mean, you do have to appreciate that. Uh, I feel like what the reason why, I mean, I, it just jumped off the screen. It was so effective in Tenenbaums for me. Like, have you ever done a January, February in Manhattan? Yeah. I mean, it's so gray. It's so dark. And like, this is a story about loss and melancholy and all these like sad themes. And like Manhattan in the winter is that. Right. And going up to like uh, Harlem, it, like you, as gray as it was, it was like it fit like the tone and the story so well. All of that, uh, all of that. Were, and then like the fact that the costumes had a pop of color and the characters were bright is the fact that, yeah, you are watching a comedy. They didn't wear all black and just it really would have been a drama at that point. There's a muted color palette in, in this movie. There's a ton of browns. Um, there's a lot of browns, a lot of woods, a lot of beiges. There's a, there's a lot of pink. You know, you got uh, Pagoda wears pink pants and. You've got Royals pajamas, which are pink. There's there's a, a good amount of reds, but there's like yeah. the only like striking color in the entire movie. If you watch it, is Henry Sherman. He wears this royal blue blazer, <laughs> yeah. which is never explained, and it's just like he stands out and he's got this blue blazer. But the rest of the movie is very muted. And to your point, like it effectively captures you know a, a February time in New York City, but that must not have been easy to do as a, as a cinematographer, as a costume designer to, to go all in and, and capture those sort of colors 
the drabbiness of New York City. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's not something you see very often. And some of those people came out in interviews and said, basically, the storyboards that Wes presented them when they got on board, it was like, this has been, he, he drew sketches that were pretty eerily similar to what the final shots were going to look like. So it's sort of like, this isn't one of those films where it's going to be like, all right, you go play and I'm going to see what you come up with and we're going to make it work. This was like, no, you have to really take this guy's vision, you know, and, and, What's more impressive is what you're saying with like the the off center world and sort of like a memory of it. It's almost like if you had like this formative core memory of Manhattan and then you left it and then you went to another part of the world. Like let's say you moved to California for 20 years and then you, but you're in your head, like you remember New York. It's almost like this movie was like where it's going to take place in that memory. Yeah. And, and that's, that's sort of what the man, version of Manhattan that he brought and, uh, it's and it's funny too because he revisits that with Grand Budapest Hotel, where it's like this this hotel that had this thriving history, and then it's like now you see it in the end end of the era, sort of say this is sort of like in Tenenbaums, that was his version of New York. I want to be in that version of New York as much. I mean, listen, you and I both lived in New York City. I lived there a long time. I'm from New York, and like New York City in its in and of itself is a great place, right? But yeah. the, the way it's done in this film, it's different. And that's a version that I want to spend time with. Like, yeah. there's like this elegance that he has, even if like, I know a lot of this film was shot in the, in the Bronx and like, it, it, there's an elegance, there's a formality to the way he, he tells his stories. And you've got Richie traveling on this ocean liner, right? Richie's holding a Bloody Mary while he's doing that. It's not just <laughs> like he's on the ship. He's got to be drinking a Bloody Mary. Again, like very like sending telegraphs. It's just... It doesn't make any sense. You got Royal living at the hotel, like I talked about earlier. You got the elevator operators. You got Royal yeah. taking his phone calls and hotel phone booths. You got Eli Cash as this literary celebrity on the cover of yeah. a Sunday magazine. Like there's these little choices that he makes as a filmmaker that are just sort of like, oh man, it just feels like you're just wearing this warm blanket. It's just, yeah, it's just delicious. Oh, so good. I totally agree. I feel, I feel like, uh, yeah, it's almost as warm as uh, one of uh, Raleigh St. Clair's turtlenecks. It's, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those deals. Like, um, yeah, you do want to be in that world. And he also makes similar choices in some of the, like in Moonrise Kingdom, he does a lot with the, the telegrams and the, in the Morse code. And he, uh, he like, he goes back to these things. Like it, you want to be in the world that Wes Anderson creates. It's I, I, I totally agree. And then and when you look, then that's what makes something like asteroid city that came out more recently. Like he knew what he was going for because he saw these films and he saw how some of these choices worked. And it felt like maybe, maybe he got stuck in like when it worked so well here, maybe he had to force some of those down because that's what, that's what you come to expect out of a Wes Anderson film. And it's almost like you wish he, he could get out of his own head. You know, you almost want to say like, yes, you did. You did this wonderful bit here but leave that there i said this to somebody just the other day that I, it would be nice to see wes anderson at this stage of his career and this is obviously a very very talented filmmaker this guy's an incredible oh, writer he's a he's got a great visual style yeah. he's great with actors i have nothing bad to say it's like i would like to see him take on something uniquely different and like just as a filmmaker like could you can you go out and make a bond movie you know, and I'm not saying that Wes Anderson's the kind of filmmaker that wants to make a James Bond movie. He probably isn't, right? But like, yeah. you know, you see the you see the work that Christopher Nolan does, and he's another artist, right? He's another visionary filmmaker, very different style, but the yeah. kind of guy that likes to make different choices and do different things. He's, he can do he different can do Batman, genres, yeah. but he could do Oppenheimer. And I would like to see Wes Anderson go down that path of like, can you take a big swing on something else thematically different? Don't do the world building, don't use the fonts, don't do the, all the stuff that you do, which everybody loves, and myself included. 
Could you do that? Are you interested in doing that? I would love to like ask him that question. I, would that get greenlit though? I feel like almost like the, the people that make Wes Anderson films probably have an expectation of what he's going to make too. That's a great I question. Don't know that, I don't know that he could. Like if he wanted to make a Bond film, like he'd get laughed out of the room, wouldn't he? Even though like he's a staggeringly talented man, like I think he would get laughed out of the room if he if he was. I don't know. Like I, I remember there was one point in time back when I think Tarantino was doing maybe the Kill Bills or something like that, where he was rumored to be doing a Bond movie, and he's even been on the record saying he would be very interested in doing a Bond movie. And I think that time has passed because he's going to stop making films pretty soon. Again, like is he capable? He absolutely is capable to do that. Sure, I think he is. If you, anybody that puts that much work into the creation of Rushmore, Tenenbaum's Grand Budapest Hotel, Life Aquatic, the Darjeeling Limited, all the yeah. like any of the, if you're going to do all that, you can certainly make a Bond film. You can certainly make another genre film that's not your wheelhouse. He's yeah. obviously got the technical ability. I wonder though, like, like he obviously doesn't have the desire to, like, or he would have at some point, like he would have like a few movies ago, but I kind of, I kind of like what he's making. I, I don't know. Tarantino kind of sees himself as more of the writer director that can do whatever genre he, he finds appealing at the moment. And there's obviously genres that he gravitates towards. Yeah. Like it's interesting. Like I think, I think of Wes Anderson in a similar vein of like Wes Anderson making the exact movies he wants to make. And it, it's always sort of got this sort of capacity within it. And, and there's sort of all certain sort of elements that he always kind of gravitates to. I think it has a lot to do with how he grew up. Like, sure. I know, like they say, like the, the, the father figure issues with Wes has a lot to do with the fact that his own parents divorced. He's probably working through some of that in his art. Um, but yeah, I think he makes this style of movies he wants to make. I don't think, I mean, I, mean, I think if you achieve that much success, you must have the industry saying, sure, well, if you want to make it, we'll make it. I want to move on to chapter five, which I call the yeah. novels of this film. There's a scene in the movie where um, when Royal is in the, clo- the, the game room, the, the game closet with his with Chaz and they're, they're yelling at each other. And, you know, the, there's a little crappy light bulb and there's a little string hanging down. We had this exact room in our house. And it was like and if you look at the board games that are in the background, there's like monopolies in there and life and like all these all these games that we all like. They all grew up in, and even like Royal, like he had to take a step back and look at it. He's like, "Oh, I haven't been in this room in like a really long time." Right? That level of detail is what I love about this this next chapter is the novels, and it's like, again, a lot of literary references in this film. Wes is a literary filmmaker. You you could tell the guy reads a lot, but like, I want to name all the books that are in this movie. Right? So you've got Dudley's World, which is written by Bill Murray, which is the Riley St. Clair. You've got Old Custer by Eli Cash, which is the Owen Wilson. You've got Family of Geniuses, which is mentioned at the beginning of the film, by Ethelene Tenenbaum. It's Royal's wife, ex-wife. Three plays by Margot Tenenbaum. And then you've got the best one to me, which is Accounting for Everything, A Guide to Personal (laughs) Finance by Henry Sherman. (laughs) Now, it's It's not only that that these books are in this film because all these characters write books. Again, a lot of literary themes throughout the film. But the fact that they took the time in this movie to design the book jackets, the covers of these books for each of these, which I have saved on my phone. I was going to text it to you after we did the episode. But like, I'm not even sure which of the covers is my favorite. They're all amazing in their own right. Probably the the accounting (laughs) one is my favorite because it's so lo-fi. It's so like, it's so bad. But like, don't you think that the fact that they took the time to come Absolutely up with these titles and to make these jackets incredible. It just, just speaks to the level of detail. He didn't have to do that. He no. could have put any stack of books in that shelf because it, like the scene wasn't about the books in the shelf, but that's what he did. Like He created that 
and doesn't it make you want to read these? I mean, I would love to read Marco Tenenbaum's three plays. They go, it's probably great. Uh, the family of genius, old Custer, old Custer with Eli Cash is hilarious. It's got to be one of the most quoted things when Eli's walking in the scene and they say, He's like, it's written in, a, in an obsolete vernacular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody supposes that Custer died a little bighorn. Well, my book presupposes maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't. Like, <laughs> so, and then, like, the reporter just stops and looks around, like, is that, did he really say that? Which book would you rather read? Would you rather read Old Custer or Dudley's World? I, I'd probably go with. Just because of the love of the character, I'd probably go with old Custer. But man, you know, Dudley's world has got to be if it's written by Bill Murray's Raleigh St. Clair, it's got to be hilarious. I wanted to ask you this as well. Would you entrust Henry Sherman to manage your financial portfolio? (laughs) He's a freaking great accountant that Henry Sherman. (laughs) He's been what Chazzy said, like, well, I'm going to call him Mr. Sherman. He's been my accountant for 20 years. Like, he's been the Tenenbaum accountant for all he's, – he's a brilliant man. What a great little character for uh, for Danny Glover to play. I mean, at that stage of his career, you know, he had done all the lethal weapons are pretty much wrapped up by 2001. He's not doing a lot of anything at that point. He gets he gets a nice little part in a Wes Anderson film, and Danny Glover just makes the most of it. And, like, how could you not like Henry Sherman? Everybody likes Henry Sherman. He's great. I don't know if I've seen a Danny Glover movie where I didn't love Danny Glover. He's just such a likable, he's got a likable charisma about him. I I think every film of his I've seen him in, I've been like, oh, the Danny Glover character is phenomenal. How great would it be to have like, if you had like a new place and like on your coffee table, you've got a couple of those books on your coffee table. I would totally get those. If if that was available, and I'm sure it probably is, the internet, you can get anything. But if you had a copy of Old Custer by Eli Cash sitting on your coffee table. The other side of that coin, what if like you brought people over and they hadn't been to your place before and they didn't get the reference? Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. Then what do you do? Do you kick them right out? Do you say you got to get <laughs> you got to get the hell out of here? This isn't for you. Like I got some buddies down here. I got some good buddies down here, and I and I mentioned that I was doing this podcast, and the looks on their faces like, have I seen that before on them? Is like, all right, never mind. We're not going to talk about it because I'm going to too mad. I'm going to too mad looking at you right now with that look. <laughs> Chapter six. I call this what could have been. My take is I think there's a whole movie, a whole other movie, or yeah. a a premium streaming series about the childhood of the Tenenbaums kids. Don't you think? 100%. I, I want to see that show or that movie about these kids' geniuses. And and, and that we never get to see that. Wasn't Chazzy's first business, wasn't like spotted mice, like Dalmatian spots on mice? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this Chaz sues his dad and he, and he gets him disbarred. <laughs> gets him disbarred. I want to see that movie. I want to see that TV show. I want to know why he had his dad disbarred. Like there is so much great material that's there that they never we never get to see. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised 20 years later with this movie that that has not come up as a, a potential like prequel or yeah. a prequel show or anything like that. Because I think anybody would probably want to watch a series. You think about that the, you think the focus would be on the kids and yeah. it wouldn't be like a prequel of like Royal and Ethylene falling in love? Maybe. But I mean, I think about having a family of kid geniuses and one is a yeah. tennis prodigy. One is, a, you know, a successful business kid and the other one is a playwright. Like, right. I think there's something there. I'm re- I'm just really surprised that that's never even seen the light of day. And maybe it has, and it's been developed, and we've just never heard about it. But I think that's really interesting that we've never seen a prequel about the Tenenbaum kids, because I think that's just ripe for storytelling. Maybe like given 10 years, 15 years, somebody's going to say, you know what? That role of Tenenbaums was phenomenal. We should probably go back and revisit that world. Yeah. We're probably just ahead of our time with you suggesting it. It's and it's also funny too that the listeners at home. I don't know if you guys are aware of Dennis's sitcom uh, where he basically predicted the future in 
probably what uh, like a, a dozen or more pop cultural situations and they all came to fruition and predicted Pinocchio before Pinocchio happened like that's just one of many 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 examples you probably on this podcast just predicted the future of the Royal Tenenbaums franchise and we're over here saying well, I don't know would they do it or not it's gonna happen it's just gonna happen like 15 years from now and I'm not gonna be able to cash in on it all right you you mentioned the Pinocchio you go with it tell everybody what the Pinocchio thing was because you'll do a better job of talking about that than I will so Ethan Cole uh he goes to he goes to see a Broadway show there and then uh what was it uh, you you had Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing uh Pinocchio and you had uh Tom Hanks playing Geppetto yes That's- Fast forward to now, Tom Hanks did play Geppetto. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I think, I think you got every one of the boxes like pretty, pretty, pretty well accurate, didn't you? And that was a script I wrote. I probably wrote that episode. That was a latter episode in the season that I wrote, and that might, that was probably like episode eight or nine. And yeah. I wrote that in that must have been written in 2015. And yeah. the whole the whole spoof of it was I just wanted to make fun of like. Ethan, Ethan gets dragged to this play. I don't like musicals. Okay. I'm not a big musical guy. I am a big fan of plays, but I don't like musicals. So Ethan gets dragged to this musical in New York city during the holidays and he doesn't want to go. And it's Pinocchio, which I thought in and of itself was just stupid. And like, (laughs) how, how could it be worse? And it's like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was a big deal at the time, so he's going to be right. in it. I figured Hanks would be, you know, it was just like Broadway stunt casting. Like, oh, how predictable is this? Right? And you you, you got it. You got why that was just absurd, right? And then, like, years later, Hanks they is did in the movie. Unbelievable. <laughs> they did it. <laughs> so You good. were, like, the happiest person in the world when that movie got announced and it was Hanks. You texted me. You're like, I can't scrolling through. I think I was it. scrolling through Facebook, and I saw, like, an Entertainment Weekly ad saying, like, first – first announcement and it's like tom hanks is this and like, you got to be kidding me and i'm like screenshotting it sending it to frantically texting it to dennis like oh <laughs> the three tenenbaum children performed margot's first play on the night of her 11th birthday they had agreed to invite their father to the party well, what'd you think dad mm, didn't seem believable to me why are you wearing pajamas do you live here he has permission to sleep over. Well, did you at least think the characters were well-developed? What characters? There's a bunch of little kids there dressed up in the animal costumes. Good night, everyone. Well, sweetie, don't be mad at me. That's just one man's opinion. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. He had not been invited to any of their parties since. In fact, virtually all memory of the brilliance of the young Tenenbaums had been erased by two decades of betrayal, failure, and disaster. Go, Mordecai! Chapter 7. I'm calling this the soundtrack. First of all, the first 10 minutes of this movie, Nick, are better than most full movies, I would Got say. It. And I referenced it earlier. We talked about Baldwin and the way the narration, the way they introduce the characters, the way they play the music. It's like you watch it. Like you could turn off the first 10 minutes of this movie and go about your day and you'd be very satisfied. The first 10 minutes of this film is phenomenal. The music in this movie, as I said earlier, I ran out and bought the soundtrack the next day. You probably did as well. But like I didn't think I, back in the day, I don't think I knew anybody that didn't have the soundtrack to the Royal Tenenbaums or Rushmore. Totally right. Um, I yeah, and in like the opening, I mean, it's sort of like this uh, this montage of scenes that kind of went together. Like the first twenty five minutes or so, 
if it was just the early heyday when they're kids, like leading up until like, uh, I guess the Richie meltdown in the tennis court. If you just did, just did that opening montage and ended it. I, I would, I would argue that, that could have won the Academy Award for best live action short. I mean, it, it just lit, left it at that without, <laughs> without the story of redemption that the movie was and everything, just leaving it where it's like the kids before the crash. It was epic. And the, and to your point, the music, was I mean it was so meticulously chosen and it fit it it fit the world it helped create the tone of the world so well and that opening monologue where Baldwin is going through all of the vignettes and there's so many of them that he kind of goes in and he comes out and like they weave in and out of like he, Baldwin sets it up we get a couple of bits of scene and dialogue and then it goes back to the Baldwin monologue and it goes through so many vignettes basically the, like the score underneath it like it was it was. Oh, it was haunting. But then also like we had like, Hey Jude, the instrumental version of Hey Jude in the background, just blaring through. And even if you take a layer back that everybody's recognized, Hey Jude is one of the most recognizable songs in the world, but that's a song about divorce. That's a song about John Lennon breaking up with Cynthia Lennon and like the devastation that caused Julian. And like, how perfect is that for like Royal Tenenbaums? Royal leaves ethylene. And Royal and Ethelene has to raise the kids without him. And it's like that fitted so well, but it's also Hey Jude. So like it's this triumphant song. And it was like one of those, it's playing on opposites the whole way through. It's like, it was so brilliant. It's like the end of this like seven minute prologue and and they show young Richie on the, on the roof of their mansion and, he, and he's got Mordecai and he releases him to the, to the sky and they play the song. And it's to your point, like it's just this big, like epic moment. And this is this is before the opening credits of the movie because then then right. they cut to in, in typical West fashion they have the faces on the screen with the font and the, the names and like and they go through that which which is great but like the fact that they had a, a, a needle drop that early in the film that was that powerful and those are peppered throughout this entire movie I mean the scene when Margot gets off the bus to Nico's these days which these is days. actually written by Jackson Brown. Um, and he played the guitar on that song. That scene when she gets off the bus and it's and it's filmed in slow mo, and and R- Richie's sitting there waiting for her. He got off the boat and he's waiting for her to pick him up, and she's walking off. And like I I would say the way that song is is scored to that scene in slow mo, and then they cut to Richie and they you see these sailors walking behind him, and they're all in their navy whites, and they're all yeah. walking in slow mo in like in order, which isn't even needed for that scene. That scene is probably I would say. One of the most iconic scenes of a film in the early thousands. Like it, totally. it's, it's one of those, like, I mean, don't you agree? Like that's oh, just like, 100%. I mean, it was just like, it's burned in my memory. Like how, how would it not be? Well, that's what I'm talking about when I was 21 and I saw it and I was just, I was like, felt like it was a staggering movie at that point. That was one of the scenes that, that did it. You're just like, Oh, cause some of it was like, to your point, it was unnecessary to a degree. Like I feel like in a lesser talented filmmaker's hands, you wouldn't have made the the you wouldn't have made the choice to do that, but aesthetically, oh, it was so visually dazzling. And by the way, Jackson Brown, I read an interview that he said, "This is what he this is hilarious." I got to read this to you again. He wrote and played guitar on that song that they played during that that bus scene. I forgot that I licensed them to use the song, and this is one of those things that comes to you in the mail, and you don't know what you're what they're talking about, and you simply just give them your permission. And then you're sitting in a movie theater and there's this great moment when Gwyneth Paltrow was coming out of a bus and something like that. And I'm thinking to myself, I used to play the guitar just like that. And then the voice comes on and it's Nico singing these days, which I played on. And he's like, I totally forgot that I gave them the, uh, the right stuff. Well, I used to play like that. That's unbelievable. <laughs> we talked about, um, you know, some of the more melancholic elements of this movie, but there's that sequence right. when 
Richie attempts suicide and he, and he does it to, and this is a real, this movie really tangents for a minute where he, he, t- he tries to take his life. And cause this movie's for the most part, pretty lighthearted. And then you got the scene where he tries to kill himself and it's, and it's done to Elliot Smith's needle in a hay. And I know you're an Elliot Smith guy. I'm a big Elliot Smith guy, particularly in the nineties. Cause he was a big deal coming out of Goodwill hunting. Um, yeah. One of my favorite Elliot Smith songs, but that whole, the way he shots, shoots that scene. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I, I feel like I can't listen to Needle in the Hay without picturing that particular right? scene. Yeah. I mean, it fits it so well. And then it, the, the I guess, like, Elliot's vocal on that mixed with the images, it just fit it really, really well. But also, like... Like like you're saying, this was a comedy, and like there was some of this, some of this leading up to it, it was like all like the the humor of it to a degree for Richie at that point was like obviously he knew he was in love with his adoptive sister. Uh, so you you realize some of that some some of it is like playing on the joke of like obviously he wants to be with her but he can't like when Raleigh says I think she's having an affair and he's like R- R- he gets furious he wants to like break something he's like you want to go kick his ass who is he you know whatever and he's so furious like yeah sometimes it's funny because you know oh it's because he's in love with her but then sure. you get to this scene and it's the it's like oh boy like an attempted suicide this is now we're in full drama territory there's nothing funny about with the images on the screen right it's it's full on like he has like that lo- that line that was i think a quote from the the french film you referenced earlier where he says i'm going to kill myself tomorrow yeah and then they go and in, they go into that montage of shots they go into that song and it's and it's done it's done masterfully and right up until like uh you know then you see dudley walk in and, and get him and he, he's out of there um and it's also it was also handled really, really well by Wes because, like, like, none of it was gratuitous. Uh, it was certainly, certainly very, very like, oh, whoa, whoa it's a sobering scene. Yeah. Uh, but then, and then, but then they immediately cut right back to like elements that kind of make you feel as audience like you're still in a comedy. It's okay because then he is immediately okay in the hospital. And Royal makes some joke too, which you would never like an inappropriate joke. He says something like, "Well, it looks pretty good for a suicide." <laughs> Like, you know, and it's like you, you shouldn't be laughing, but it's like Royal is saying it's okay. Like this, we're back in the, there's elements of this is a, this is a funny story. It was all handled like about as well as you could have. Then he cuts back to the house when, when Richie leaves the hospital and Margo's in the tent and she's listening to records and Richie goes in. And again, I don't think the suicide scene works without you playing it off with this last sequence, right? When he goes yeah. in. And then when he finally, he's like, you know, she wants to see the, the wounds on his arms and he, he takes off his, his wraps and he shows all the cuts and she's like really horrified and she feels he's devastated crying. for him. And he's like, I got to talk to you. I got to tell you something. I'm in love with you, you know? And like, and it's this, this moment of pure honesty between these two. You could tell that it was, it was building towards that. Right. And it's one of the best scenes in the film. And then, it really is. then, then he plays the Rolling Stones and it's just like, oh, yeah. it's just you're just like, man, you could, you and the music supervisor, whoever that was like could have chosen so many different songs for, for that scene and that moment. And he chooses the Rolling Stones. And, and then when you watch the film, you're like, no other song could possibly work there. That's just not possible. I feel like that with the entire score with every song, like when he played wigwam, I feel like like all of it, all of it fit so, so well to the moments. And like, I almost feel like I, what's crazy is like those are some of those like Nico's song and when the Dylan song Wigwam, like some of these were like already massive, you know, successes in their, in their own right. And then now I can't hear them without picturing Royal Tenenbaums. I'm the same. I'm, I'm the exact same. And then like the last note I would make on it, we'll move on is like the, uh, the last shot of the film, which is at Royal's, you know, um, funeral and, and throughout the cemetery and they're all walking out of, of the gravesite. 
and it's all enclosed by like this gated fence and and they all start walking out and they're playing Van Morrison's um, Everyone from from Moondance, which is one of my actually one of my very favorite albums. And um, and it, one by one, they all like leave through the gate. Right. And then like I, I think it's it's Richie that's there at the end. And he's like throws the rose on, on the on the on the casket and he turns around like what a great, amazing way to end the movie. Like, it's just like, and I don't, if, if they didn't do it in slow-mo, I don't think it works at all. Right. Right. And it doesn't work without Van Morrison. Like it just, it's that combination of the way it's shot, the way they all come out one by one. It's like giving each character like one more send off, right. Almost like a play. And then, yeah. and then you've got, you've got the music and it, the way they close the gate and Pagoda is the last one that closes the gate and walks off frame. Like that's incredible. Oh, it really was. Uh, no, yeah. And, and it was all like so meticulously thought out. You probably, if you asked Wes, he probably had some of these songs picked out years before they even got to the set to start shooting day one. Right. I love how deliberate the choices were though. None of this was accident. None of this was like, Oh, I don't know if you got a song, let's see if it fits it or not. I feel like all of these were such deliberate choices. They it's almost like the soundtrack on the bear where you feel like whoever the showrunner is on the bear, like you feel like, that guy, like the music played such a pivotal role in the storytelling. I feel like it's the same deal with Wes. Like in what's, you know, some of like the, some of the instrumentals that he uses are so, uh, so well towards the pace and the, the story. I feel like there's just nothing accidental. It's all so very deliberate that you feel like when you, when you're listening, watching a Wes Anderson film and you hear the score in the background, you hear the music in the background, you, you almost as an audience member need to take a step back and say, why is Wes playing something that sounds like this right now in this moment? Yeah, because it's obviously a deliberate choice, and it's like it's so nuanced. There's all kinds of movies and TV shows today that may, that have needle drops and have songs, and some do it well, you know, like The Bear, and and some don't do it well. But like it's it's right. the, the great filmmakers like Scorsese and and Wes Anderson. These are the, Tarantino. These are people that music is is part of the story, and it's not just this additive piece that you you put in in post production and you, oh this works here. I think it's really truly part of the fabric of the character and the tone and the theme of the film and music is just another way to, to, you know, convey that. And I think the best filmmakers are the ones that, that do that, you know, just far and above better than anybody else. Chapter eight, this is going to be 30 seconds. Could anybody else besides Alec Baldwin narrate this movie? <laughs> I feel like the default answer has got to be, what about Morgan Freeman? He can narrate anything, but uh, no, you're right. Morgan doesn't work for this movie, right? I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> no, I, I think that Alec was the perfect choice for this because he's also a New York guy. Yep. He's got that Long Island accent. I wrote down one other person that I think could could have done this. And I'm not saying it would be nearly as good as it wouldn't be. John Hamm could do it. That, yeah, yeah. There's a certain quality to John's voice that would probably have done a pretty damn good job. Don Draper, that voice he has is like, I think he could have pulled off the, the, the ball. And I would actually like, if I was with John Hamm, I'd want to get the script out and I'd ask yeah. him, can you read the opening monologue by by Baldwin, and let, let's hear it. I want to hear your take on it. Did you see that story that uh, there's the awards show? He gets up there and and he brings up the narration. He said something like West told him like I don't I don't want narration in this, and I'm not going to use it in the film. Yep. As he throws it out there, like Alec heard this, like oh man, poor Alec, you know, and because he goes and he does the narration for a film, and it's just going to get cut, and it turns out it gets used. But meanwhile, everybody else went act and debunked it and said, like, I don't know. Then the narration was in the script the entire time, so pretty sure it was going to be there. Chapter nine, Eli Cash. Because oh. we, we got to talk about Eli Cash for a minute. This guy, Nick, what's going on with Eli Cash? This is a this is a character, and you, you got to remember Owen Wilson is the co screenwriter of this movie. Yes, he gives himself this little role. It's not a huge role; it's a relatively small role. But like, this is a, an assistant professor at Brooks College who becomes this <laughs> literary celebrity. 
He writes old Custer. Um, yeah. He's, you know, he's on the cover of the Times magazine. Like he wears cowboy hats. He's got this yeah. jacket that's got like fringe on it. I mean, like, what is that? What kind of character is that? I feel like, I feel like, yeah. And I, he probably got, he probably became a famous literary author in the story because of his proximity to the famous Tenenbaum kids. But my thought with, with Eli, which is a really brilliant device by Wes, there was like three characters in this film where it's a story about a, a child geniuses, right? There's three. So from the audience perspective, you need entry points into the story that you're going to find relatable. Yeah. And there's a couple obvious ones. So like Eli Cash is not a Tenenbaum. Nope. So he wants desperately to be a Tenenbaum. He wants desperately for the acceptance and approval uh, of them because he wants to be a, a genius like them. There's some some elements of jealousy. There's also this need for approval that he's so desperately seeking. That is relatable to the audience. Like we're not genius children as the audience members. We're walking into the story that, but it's also like he's oblivious to the fact that the Tenenbaums aren't happy people. He wants so desperately to be a part of this world because he imagines being a genius solves problems that he's yeah. got in his own life. That if you look at them, they're they're all tragically depressed. Um, that's one entry point. The other entry point, uh, I think, is Margot because she's adopted. So she's not technically one of the genius offspring of Royal and Ethelene. Uh, she's brought in. She is still one of the Tenenbaum geniuses. But that's like that's an entry point in. Whereas I feel like if you look at Chazzy, the only thing is relatable at him is if you've experienced like the loss So him being like uh, having a preternatural understanding of international finance is not something the average audience member is like, Oh, that's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they finally made a movie about guys like me. That, that That's not happening. But Eli cash is one that you can relate to. There's always those people in your own childhood that you can look to and think, man, I wish I could have been like that guy. I wish I could have been a part of like that family. I wish that could have been my talent. I wish that could have been me. And Eli was that, right? That was like, that was why he was there. And then also one of the massive themes of like the, uh, the unfulfilled promise and the, the ultimately failure. Well, that, that was Eli. Eli realized he wasn't a genius. That whole bit at the beginning where he writes the book and he's a successful literary author, but all the critics are saying he's especially not a genius. And he's like, well, how would, why would you say somebody's especially not a genius? And <laughs> he goes, <laughs> and then he makes a big point of that. Well, he wasn't, right? And so then he spirals into drugs and addiction, and he kind of goes off the rails, and he's clearly headed for rock bottom. I think because he wanted so desperately to be one of these genius Tenenbaums that he just couldn't be. Like, he's just not. He has that line at the end when he says, I always wanted to be a Tenenbaum. And then Royal, Royal says, me too, me too. And again, he could relate to that too because he's been, you know. But how how poignant is that? Like, so like basically, like a lot of, a lot of Royal's bravado has got to be these kids are an extension of like how brilliant I was. But then you hear that and it's like, you never even believed you were, Oh exactly. my God! You too. Yeah, they show his apartment at that one scene when and when Richie goes to see him and like I'm not sure if I, I never even noticed this early on when I first saw this film, but I watched it again and I saw that there's like a pile of porn tapes. Have you seen? Have you have you noticed that? Like when they go to <laughs> Eli's apartment, there's like a big stack of like porn VHSs and they're all just sitting there. And then he's got those paintings on the on the wall, which are crazy. <laughs> And then, like he's got, he's on the couch, and he's like, these three other goons are sitting with him. He's got like he's on It's just like, who are these guys? They don't even. Speak. <laughs> it's just like, but you know, you don't want to mess with them. Like these are not good people. No, like, not no. He, people. <laughs> he's oh, is it? And then like they go in for the intervention, and he's like, oh, is it just you two? Like he knew the intervention was coming. It's like anybody else it was just you. Oh, okay. And then he just sneaks <laughs> out. And then they had the like, and then they show when he was back when he was popular. 
and he's uh, he's on the Charlie Rose show. And it was obviously yeah. it was supposed to be Charlie Rose and Charlie Rose plays the guy, but it wasn't supposed to be his name. But like he's interviewing him about the book and then he has that meltdown. And all of a sudden, like he just starts. He just goes wildcat. <laughs> and then he just takes his mic off and he just leaves like he's just he's like, I- I'm going to go. And he just like leaves the interview. So great. Great creation. Like the ending for Eli Cash there, like when he actually does hit rock bottom, ties into like Chazzy's worst nightmare. Yeah. And they don't treat it like, they don't treat it like with the doom and gloom and despair. It's sort of like, almost like, I thought that was a really profound ending too. Eli basically gets hopped up on, I'm assuming speed or something. And he like drives a car clean off of the sidewalk into the uh, the brownstone that the Tenenbaums are at, and he crashes his car into uh, Chazzy's dog. Yep. The one that survived the plane crash. Yeah, kills the dog. And then, like, as he's sitting there and like, he's on the ground and Chaz is sort of, like, just sort of stunned by, like, the, the events of it all there after they, they, they chase him down and they're all just sitting there floored. He's like, did I kill the dog? It's like, yeah, you, you killed the dog. And it's like, you think how, how that's got to be, like, given what Chaz went through with the wife in the plane crash, like, could a worse thing have happened to him than something like that? And the yep. fact that he was almost like at peace with it, he almost like found like he, that's like the, that was the point that Chaz finally get to the point where he's able to tell his, tell his Royal, like I've had a really tough year, dad. Yeah. And he's like able to like have like a heart to heart with Henry Sherman. And he like, he comes down off that edge of the need for safety and security. And like, you look at that and you think like, well, that was a profound choice. And the fact that, Eli, like, it was almost like a joke. Like, yeah, you look at him. He's got the crazy face paint on. And he's, like, hopped up. And he, like, drives his car clean over, like, a rail into the thing. And it's like, whoa. Like, and it's almost like this is a funny thing. But it's like when you think about it, like, for what that meant to the other characters. Jeez Louise. Like, that is, like, devastating. After he chases him through the house and he, they go to the neighbor's backyard. And they're both laying yeah. each other on the ground. And I think Eli finally says, like, you know, I need help. And then Chaz says the same thing. He's like, you know, I think he says, so do I. Or something, or I do too. Yeah, and I think he realized that, yeah. that he's finally, finally broken as a person, and and really needs to uh, figure out a way to channel his his uh, his sadness about the loss of his wife. But chapter ten, a minute on Raleigh Sinclair is is the name of this chapter. Uh, I just want to say, I just think Raleigh is is a fantastic character. He's hardly in this movie. It's amazing yeah. you get Bill Murray in a movie like this, but he's hardly in it. I can't imagine they used him for more than a couple of days filming because he's just yeah. he's hardly in it. But I, this is this is when Bill Murray is really selective on projects. He had just done Rushmore, you know, two years before, three years before. He was just about to do Lost in Translation, which obviously kind of catapulted his career into a whole other. Yeah, that works out well for him. Dimension. This is a good little run for him. But like, just like I, I guess, like only Bill Murray could play Raleigh Sinclair. And then I was thinking about this the other day. I think I texted you. I think Jeff Goldblum probably could have done it. Um, and yeah. there's, but there's, and maybe like, maybe Eugene Levy could play him as well, Ooh. but that, that's it. But like, it's, it's the way he does these lines. Like when at, at the end of the movie, when they're on the book tour and someone says like, can, can the boy tell time? And he's like, Oh my Lord, no <laughs> 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 fucking hilarious. Like just hilarious delivery. <laughs> don't worry. Oh my Lord. No, he can't tell time. <laughs> It's so good. How interesting. How bizarre. Yeah. Dudley does like an experiment. It's like, wow, wow. How bizarre. It was so good. Bill Murray just being in a movie like this just adds a whole other dimension. And Bill Murray is one of those guys that you see him in a lot of Wes Anderson films like Life Aquatic in, in this. Yep. And he re- really does fit the Wes Anderson aesthetic really, really well. Bill Murray's acting style 
really thrives in the Wes Anderson sort of model um, in a way that not every actors would. Like I would say Tom Hanks is a phenomenal talent, but I don't think he fit the Wes Anderson aesthetic in Asteroid City very well. Um, Where I just feel like Bill Murray in just about any one of those, he sort of gets it and he, his acting style lends itself really well. Like it just, it brings out really, really, really wonderful elements in, in what he does. Like I, I think that like, it's it's not surprising to see Wes Anderson use the same actors in a lot of his scripts. Like you can see Adrian Brody a lot. You see Schwartzman a lot. You see, you know, you see uh, Willem Dafoe and, and some of these people a lot because they, they sort of kind of fit well within that aesthetic. What Bill Murray does in Rushmore, you kind of feel like he comes out of Rushmore. He must want to play Royal. Yeah. And it would have been a different movie and all that stuff. Uh, but giving him a role like Raleigh would have been a throwaway character. I think if he didn't play it, but the way he did, he sort of like thrived so well in the Wes Anderson model that Raleigh St. Clair became like, he was a tenant bomb. Like it was, he, he really kind of like was a memorable character. And I remember like me and my buddies that when we first saw it 20 years ago, we would quote Raleigh St. Clair lines almost more so than we would quote Richie lines. <laughs> you know, like he's very quotable in this. Nobody plays pompous and like ego like Bill Murray. And I think that's why he works in these movies. Cause you look at like, you look at Henry Bloom from Rushmore yeah. and he's like kind of a sad guy. He's not happy, but he's also like this wealthy dude. Right. And then yeah. you've got, you've got Raleigh St. Clair, who's just like this, you know, you could tell that he's a, he's a writer, he's a researcher and he wears, he wears those blazers and the turtlenecks. He's very pompous. And then you've got, yeah. You know, Steve Zissou is very full of himself and, and, and aquatic. So, yeah, I mean, not a lot of actors can, can play that. But that's like that's Bankman, right? That's Bankman from Ghostbusters. That's he's he's full of himself. He's got big, big personality, big ego. That's Bill Murray. He's he's built up the industry cloud to be able to play that with like it's not even like a stretch for him. It's just like it's old. It's old hat. You know, God, I love Raleigh Sinclair. Such a great character. Love it. Wrapping up. I have a couple of questions for you. One is, can you survive on crackers and root beer? Like Margot and Richie when they when they ran away and slept in the library. What do you think? I got to say yes. Um, <laughs> quick quick story, not a long one. Uh, neighbors, a couple doors down, uh, last couple of Christmases, they show up with a Christmas present for the kids and us, and they brought root beer floats. I hadn't had a root beer in probably thirty years. Uh, I went ahead and uh, the kids, the kids at their age and uh, nine and seven, they basically have one sip of the root beer float and then they're done. So I was like, well, I'm not going to let that go to waste. I had it. Um, wow. Right. Is there a better, is there a better treat than a root beer float? My goodness. You get a little A&W with some vanilla. It's delicious. In the last couple of years of my dad's life, they got into this root beer float phase. Yeah. And like, I don't even know how it came about. And now we would have root beer floats when we were kids from time to time or a Coke float, right? Same thing just with Coke. Oh yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, like my mom was like, your father needs a root beer float. And he needs one every afternoon. And I'm like, Get wait the man a float. You, are you saying that you guys have root beer floats every afternoon, like Monday through Friday? She's like, absolutely. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know that. That's cool. <laughs> Over the last 20 years, how many men do you think dressed up as Richie Tenenbaum for Halloween? I mean, that, I mean, is, that, a, I, that is a costume that paid for itself <laughs> over and over again through the years. Did you do it? Uh, I'm mad at myself for having not. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do what I can right now. For this and podcast being the visual medium that they are, excellent. Um, yeah, you know what? I could be Richie Tenenbaum. Nick, right Nick, now. Nick has just put on his his headband and his sunglasses, and he's wearing a turtleneck and a blazer. So he's very much 
playing the role of bomber. What a Halloween costume that is. You got to have the long hair, right? You got to, I mean, if you're doing it the way he did, you got to have one shoe and one sock off in the middle of the tennis court. <laughs> That's uh, 72 Unforced Errors by Richard Kornbaum. <laughs> He's playing the worst tennis of his life. <laughs> so great. It's so good. I had to put that in there for my buddy, Jennifer Dill, who I used to work with. Um, that We would say that line to each other when we worked together. I know she's laughing right now. I put that in there just for her. And I also love the uh, that scene when they're in the cemetery and he's, he's talking to Margo. And then that one guy spots Bomber from a distance. He's like, yo, Bomber. <laughs> and Richie kind of gives him like a little like thumbs up. Like he looks at him and he acknowledges him. Just like the fact that a random fan would come up to him in a cemetery is really funny to me. That's the stuff. He plays it so well. And then the, then at the end when he's doing the uh, tennis lessons and the redemptive water yep. and he just smokes the kid in the practice. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Dude, this was a blast. Anything else I'm missing before we wrap? Any other parting thoughts on Royal Tenenbaums? Now's your chance. An interesting debate would have been uh, similar to if you and I or anybody was to discuss uh, which is, which is your favorite Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction? I feel like an almost similar argument could be had: which is your favorite Wes Anderson, this or Rushmore? I feel like you could go back and forth on that, and then also like late and later, I'm really into uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, I almost feel like comparing and contrasting those are really interesting. But um, I think as far as this, I think I think we kind of touched on all the elements that make Royal Tenenbaums a classic that it is. If I had to say like which one was my favorite. I, I'm not mm. sure. Like, I, I really love this film, um, but I really love Rushmore. I got after, man, that's a tough one. They're, they're, they're both great films. It's a good problem to have. So listen, everybody, thanks for listening. Um, we will be back. Um, we're going to be doing Curtis Hansen's superb LA confidential from 1997. Woo-hoo. That is a big studio film at the highest level. In my opinion, it was up for best picture. It was up for a bunch of Oscars and it won for screenplay. Um, and it won for uh, Kim Basinger. Jason Thompson is going to join me for that. When I had Jason on the show last winter, we did heat. And uh, I asked him at the end of that episode, what do you want to do next? And he said, LA confidential. And he said it very quickly. So who am I to deny Jason Thompson? So he'll be on soon. And then we're going to close out the year with Bob Clark's a Christmas story from 1983. A, uh, that is a Kamlik favorite. Um, that's going to be a very special conversation with Scott Safon. And my big bro, Jim Kamlick. Um, another film, Nick, that I would say is pretty damn near perfect. Oh, it really is. Right? It really is. I mean, it hits all the feels. That one's going to be pretty special. I'm looking forward to wrapping up the year with that. Anyway, listen, Nick, this was a blast, man. Thanks for being on. As always, it's love, I love having you on the show. I love your take. I love your analysis. Good stuff. Think about high fidelity. Just think about it. <laughs> uh, we're totally doing high fidelity. Is going to be. Uh, I'm going to start working on it now. I'm going to start coming with a top five list of uh, things I want to talk about because obviously <laughs> there's going to be a few top fives. We should do the whole episode in a top five format. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we'll figure it out. We got some time, so we'll do it. Thanks for being on. As always, it's been a pleasure, buddy. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. My pleasure. Be well. Take care. All right. Bye.